So in first century Israel, uh, they'd gone through a ton of pain and suffering, right? In first century Israel, they'd gone through centuries of, of one nation coming in and conquering them, and then another nation coming in and conquering them, and then another nation coming in and conquering them. And at this point, the Roman Empire expanded to its, its breadth almost, uh, was over this region uh, in the Middle East as well. And so as they were beginning to uh, think about the, the prophets that they had, had come, and as, not even beginning, but in generation after generation, thinking about the prophecies that had been spoken, that they would have someone to come and renew their kingdom. In the Roman Empire, they were, they were suffering. They were longing and they were waiting for something to change. They were longing and they were waiting for their kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, to be back to the glory that God had promised them. They were longing for a savior to come and bring rescue. And the prophets had spoken about someone who would, who would have the divine power that, that God had given to him, who would have words that only, only God would be able to, to communicate, who would have a righteous life that would be an example to others. And, and in, in that moment, Jesus arrives. In that moment, Jesus arrives and he begins to perform miracles. He, he heals the blind and the sick. He's, he shows mercy and compassion to the lowly and the outcast. He, he refutes the self-righteous religious leaders. He is generous and feeds the hungry. He, he helps people in every walk of life. And they kill him. He sets this example for righteousness and justice and goodness. He, he teaches about the kingdom and the glory of God. He comes into a community, a city, and a nation of people who have been longing and waiting for their Savior to come. And he teaches these things, and he does these things, and they kill him. This example of righteousness and goodness. And he's destroyed. This is the world that we live in. This is what Solomon is going to be talking about today in this passage. We live in a world that looks upon righteousness and rejects it. We live in a world that, that wickedness seems to prosper, that evil and, and sin seems to be successful. Right? We know this in all kinds of ways in, in our own lives, in daily life. We see it in little things, right? You're standing in line at the coffee shop, and then someone cuts in front of you, and they get the last cake pop. Mm-hmm. You see it in bigger things, like at work when you have a coworker who's, who's always kind of late for the Zoom meeting and muted and the camera's off and maybe not really paying attention. And, and then their work, it gets in on time, but it's just kind of like subpar, but they're the ones that your boss celebrates, gives the raise to, promotes. We see it all around us. We see that, that it seems like the people that live righteously, that, that are trying to do good, that, that want to do the right thing, they're the ones that are suffering. They're the ones that are enduring pain. The, the ones that don't deserve it, they're the ones that, that have the world around them coming in on them. And on the other hand, the people that are wicked or evil or, or just self-centered and self-focused and, and continuing to, to work after what it is that they think is going to bring them joy and glory in life, well, they seem to be successful in it. They seem to be enjoying it and living it and loving it. But they don't deserve that. Right? There's this, this tension that we start to see. I mean, just looking at the, the world around us, we see grave situations. For example, uh, in Arizona, we have a foster care crisis. What that means is that we have so many kids in need of safe homes that the state is continuously at work to recruit people to open up their homes so that these kids can come and just have a place to sleep 
to be cared for. Some of the families in our church have, have answered that call because they want to take these kids in and care for them because we are desperate for someone to love them. See, the reality is we have a foster care crisis because there are people in our city, there are people in our state who have, who have anger and abuse and addiction gripping their lives taking such control over their lives that they cannot take care of a child or themselves, and yet God continues to allow them to conceive and bless them with kids. And so the state has to remove them in order to find a safe home for them. And at the same time, there are people even in our own church who have suffered under the trying and praying and trying again to have kids of their own, and they can't. They felt only shame and pain. How is that fair? How do we look at politicians that rise to power through aggression and, and force and treat nobody as, as important? And bosses in, 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 um, in the corporate world that step on everybody else's shoulders on their way to the top. And they don't care about anyone else around them. But they have the yacht and the Porsche and the power. I mean, this is the world that we live in, right? I mean, this is, we could say like we should live righteously and live good, but, but as we start to look at the people around us, the people that just kind of get along, they're the ones that kind of live in this middle range. So things are fine. But the people that live wickedly, they, it seems like things are great. People that are trying to do well, they're, they're poor and suffering and, and always hard, under hardship. This is the world that, that Solomon was living in too. It, it doesn't seem to be new. And so if you follow along with me, uh, we're in Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to start in verse 13. And he writes this. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In other words, when I look around, this is really confusing. God seems to be doing something that is, doesn't make sense. How can anybody understand it if God's made it undiscernible. Verse 14, it says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So when your things are good, celebrate. And when things are hard, just remember that God is still in control. And then this is really where he starts to dig in in verse 15. In my vain life, in my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. See, Solomon is, is hitting on a single question here, a single thought that every single one of us in this room has asked. And honestly, it's the root of doubt and, and, and faithlessness and, and um, pain and suffering in this world. It's the reason that people don't believe that there's a God. It's the reason that people don't believe the gospel or the church. It's the reason that, that people deny all of this and even why we're here today. Why does bad things happen to good people? And on the flip side, why does evil prosper? 
So the question here is, is Solomon is beginning to rack his brain. He's gone through chapter after chapter of, I've tried this, I've tried making as much money and wealth as I can. I have the power and the wealth of a king, and it's not enough. I have uh, the concubines and the wives of a king, and it's not enough. I have tried to have power and success in, in battle. I have had all kinds of glory shown upon me as the king, and it wasn't enough. And then I've tried to seek wisdom, and I've studied, and I've prayed, and I've sought after everything that I could learn and understand, and it still didn't give me satisfaction. And as he goes into this section now, he started to recognize there's this tension about the world that he sees around him is that there is nothing that seems to make sense when you look at the fact that good people suffer and bad people don't. It's like a crapshoot, a lottery. Some people are successful and they don't deserve it. And some people try so hard and they never get it. What kind of good God does that? I mean, does God even care? Does he even see what we are enduring down here? See, Solomon is asking this question. He's even wrestling with it uh, with us in this passage, going back and forth, saying, if this is the way it is, then this is the best thing you can do. Don't be overly righteous, right? Don't be overly righteous because that stands out. The world is not fair. The life we live is not fair. And so if you're this overly righteous person, this person that's always striving to do good, people start to notice. And the reality is, is that people in power, people in positions of authority, people over you, people around you, your neighbor, your coworker, your would-be friend, they notice. And that's not always a good thing. Right? It's not always a good thing when, when people notice that you're trying to do right. I mean, Solomon's going to use an example in a few verses from this where he talks about the servant of a king. And the servant of a king stands there and he, he, looks at, um, he looks at the king and he sees that he's doing something evil, something wrong, something unwise as, as a leader. And so Solomon asks the question, should this servant go and tell the king, hey, you should stop doing that? Well, wisdom would say no. Right? Think about the position of, of a servant. Right? Maybe you're just thinking about in the position at your work. If you see that your boss is cheating at something or, or lying about something or, or maybe just like fudging the numbers a little bit, are you going to go to them and say, hey, you should probably stop doing that? Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, if you do that, what's the likelihood that you get in trouble? What's the likelihood that you get fired? What's the likelihood that that servant gets put in prison or killed? And if you don't have that situation, everybody remembers this because I remember it vividly. Sitting in class in high school, I forgot to do my, forgot. I didn't do my homework assignment again. Um, I forgot a lot. Um, sitting in class and just waiting for the time to tick down so that you could, you could get out and, and be free. And then like a minute before that bell rings and I could like hear the bell almost. It's like the first ding of what it is. And then someone in the front row says, uh, excuse me, you forgot to collect the homework? Everybody hates that kid. I hated that kid. He was right. But I hated that kid. See, the reality is, is that, that, that living a righteous way starts to, starts to stick out. And it's not always a good thing. It's not always a good thing because people notice when you live that way. And, and even worse, and I think what Solomon's really getting at here, is that if you start to live this way, you start to become self-justifying. Right? You start to become self-righteous. And as you, as you look at this, uh, in, this, in this context, Solomon's starting to say, hey, the people that live this way, they always want to be right, right? The, the servant of the king doesn't even care what the king is doing inherently. They, he just wants to be right. 
He just wants them to know, hey, you think you're all high and mighty. You're the king, but that's wrong. He starts to forget about his own issues, his own sin. In fact, Solomon's gonna bring this to light in verse 20. He says this, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So you have this picture, don't be overly righteous because that's gonna stick out. And and the real root of the problem there is that this self-righteousness starts to become an issue too. Right, if you're just living to be righteous in the way that, that Solomon's writing about right now, if you're, just, if you're just trying to pursue this path, well, then this extreme, it's going to stick out. And it's going to stick out for the wrong reasons. And so we look at this and we look at the world around us and we see that, well, it seems like people who just kind of live for themselves and, and, and aren't necessarily self-righteous, aren't, aren't too far in that direction, they're in this other camp, well, we should just, just do whatever we want. I mean, shouldn't we just live however we want then? And Solomon says, well, don't be overly wicked. Don't be a fool. And, and that's, that makes sense to us, right? We have, we have this situation in our lives or, or a friend or, or a neighbor that, that's made all kinds of decisions that are just clearly the wrong, the wrong path, right? The kind of path that just decision after decision just continues to build. They get into this cycle that they, they don't even know how to escape on their own. And, and you've experienced this in your life. You ever told a lie? Yeah, it's okay. I know. Me too. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, you've told a lie, and then, you know, you, you've told a lie about something. It, maybe it was a small thing to a friend, to your spouse. Well, then the next thing is you, you get trapped into like, well, trying to justify that, or, or really you try to lie again. Right? If you're talking to your, maybe your parents when you're a little kid, you're like, oh, I didn't really do that. Like, I, I meant to do this. And then you had to tell another lie, and, and it continues to build and in this cycle build, like that's the reality of, of the wicked that he's talking about here, right? When you're overly wicked, when you dive head first into the drugs or, or the parties or, or the greed or the lust or whatever it is that these people dive into, right? It's, it's one thing after another. It's small steps that continue to build on themselves until it spirals out of control. Right? It ends up in pain and suffering and anguish. Right? The people that are successful, the people that we see that, that we might picture as, as like the evil ones in this text, the, the politicians, the, the business leaders, the, the, whatever it is that you have in your mind that, that think, oh man, they've like hurt so many people on their way to do this. Those aren't the majority. The majority of people that follow a path of wickedness are isolated and alone. The majority of people that follow a path of wickedness are, are bitter and, 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 and hurt and suffering themselves under the weight of their own decisions, under the, uh, the abandonment of friends and family that they've hurt. Right? They're, not, they're not the ones society looks to and overlooks like how bad they've done to get there and, and celebrates the success. They're the ones that are sitting in, in alleyways or in apartments by themselves wishing that they hadn't made the decisions they made. That's the majority. So don't go in that direction and, and don't be self-righteous. Don't go, don't go in, the, in the righteous direction. Just like, just like huddle in the middle somewhere, right? And, and that's kind of what we're seeing in this section in Solomon. He, he, he's, he's saying, look, like, you don't wanna be this self-righteous and you don't wanna be overly righteous and stick out because that might not go well for you. But you also don't want to be wicked. That, that's just foolish. That, that's clearly going to lead to destruction in your own life. And so just kind of like figure out how to live in the middle, right? Just like 
like, don't be the kind of guy that like points too many things out or, or the woman that like just does whatever, you know, someone else wants them to do. Like, like somewhere in the middle, just like, you know, you're not that bad, but you're not overly good. Like just somewhere like in the middle, just live uh, and just like let bygones be bygones, you know, live and let live, just do as you can. Like, just, just somewhere in the middle, right? That's kind of the tension that, that Solomon gives us in this passage. Is he's seeing like, hey, look, it seems like everything is, is good for the wicked and everything is bad for uh, the righteous. And so you don't really want to be wicked because, because that's not what it looks like in the rest of Scripture. So wh- that doesn't make any sense. We don't really want to be overly righteous. But again, I don't remember anybody else teaching that. And so what do we do? Right, we start to excuse our behavior. We start to say, well, I, I haven't really done this that much, or I haven't really done that bad, right? I'm not like, I'm like the worst, I, I, I'm okay, right? And I'm not the best, but I'm good, right? And, and we start to feel this tension of like, well, what is it that God is, that is calling us? Like, how do we live? Does he even care about what's going on? I mean, if this is what I'm seeing in the world around me, what does it matter that I do? That's what Solomon's asking. In verse 10 of chapter 8, so skip ahead, maybe a page even, uh, for some of you, he's going to answer that question a little bit more. It says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Right, this is the question that Solomon's asking and now answering. Does God see what we're doing? Does God see what we're experiencing? Does he see the same things that we're seeing in this world? Right? Does he see the iniquity and the despair and the suffering of the righteous? Does he see the, the success and the joys and the pleasures of the wicked? Does he see what we are seeing? And Solomon is saying, yes. And he has this picture where he gets sobered at, at basically a funeral of a wicked man. Right? It was sitting... Um, He's sitting in this experience where he's, he's starting to realize the mortality of this person who is celebrated in the midst of his wickedness, right? Even in the holy place, as the temple, the place of worship, there was something about the way this man lived. He dressed the right way. He walked the right way. He knew the right Bible verses to say. He had everything in order enough to, so that even when he was known for being a harsh master or, or he was known for being greedy and, and, and even a thief, he was known for these things. It doesn't matter what his wickedness was. He was celebrated in the worship or in the temple of worship by these people just because he seemed to be successful. And that Solomon sat at a funeral to see the, the death did not hold back from him. And he sobered and realizes, look, we can look around and see success, but that success doesn't last forever for the wicked. And we can look around and see suffering, but that suffering doesn't last forever for the righteous. And he starts to bring us back to the point when we look at life and we just only see what is in front of us, when we only see what is under the sun, when we only see the life as we know it today, there's very little hope. There's very little hope. But when we begin to see above those things, when we begin to see that God is above, that God does see around us, there's something more. 
There's something more that we can begin to have hope in. There's something more that we begin to see. And that thing is that God does see the injustice and the pain in this world. That God does see the pain and the suffering. That God does see the things that we hate and don't know why he allows. And God sees the things that we think should be rewarded and only finds suffering. So the Lord sees these things. And and Jesus, in his own teaching in Matthew 25, he puts it this way. He's going to come back and he's going to be on a throne seated before all people. He says, before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. See, the problem is that when we're looking in this world and we're looking around us and we see these things, this tension between the righteous and the the wicked or, or good and evil, when we see this tension, we want God to do something now right now. When is it going to stop? But what we see is that God has a plan in the future to put an end to it. Jesus is clear there will be a point when it stops. And yet God is perfectly patient in waiting for his justice because he's also merciful. And his mercy is the beauty of the gospel, right? His mercy is what we see in this world. His mercy is what we get to experience as Christians, and it's the hope that we have. Because if God wasn't perfectly patient in that justice, he could have done something in Genesis 3, right? He could have done something thousands of years ago. He could have put an end to it before it even begun. He could have not created it. He could have stopped it. He could have put judgment at any point along the way. And yet his perfect patience, allowing some things in this world to happen now in order for people to, to know him more, in order for us to get to meet him today, that is the patience that we see in God's mercy. That is the hope that we have as Christians. That is the love that we get to experience, even in the midst of suffering and pain, even in the midst of this imbalance of justice and righteousness, even in the midst of that, we get to hope and long for the time when Jesus will come and he will be judged and he will recognize the sin and the evil and the wickedness of this world and call it what it is, but he will also declare righteousness for those who put their faith in him. Right? That is the joy that we have. John 19 says this, it is finished. That means the judgment is atoned for for those who put their faith in Christ. And that's the beauty that we see in this world that, that even, though, um, even though the righteous, that is ultimately, especially as I began, Jesus has suffered under the hands of wickedness. God's hope is to bring reconciliation, to bring peace and healing. God's plan is to bring new life to those who have endured that suffering, right? God has given us this this gift through Jesus that in his sacrifice, he has overcome even our own wickedness that we might be declared righteous, that we might be forgiven and that we can have eternal life beyond the judgment in a life that no longer sees that, no longer has that pain, and has a righteousness in which we live that out. And so, of course, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to pick up his cross, pick up our cross and live like him, to suffer as righteous in this life now, because judgment isn't now, judgment is coming. And so when we're called to be like him, we're called to endure like him, we're called to suffer like him, and we live in a righteous way because that is what Jesus did. He came and he performed miracles and he taught amazing things and he talked about the kingdom of God and they killed him. And so we shouldn't expect things differently. And I'm not trying to be self-righteous here. Remember that. I'm calling us to something else, something that says we are here to be light in the darkness. We're going to stick out. And we should be generous over and abundant, even giving the shirts off our backs to the naked and the poor and the hungry in order to care for them and to show them the love and the mercy of God as he has shown it to us through Jesus on the cross. 
That is how we live. We don't live in the middle, trying not to be like better than some people and not as good as others so that we don't stick out or, or we're not so wicked that we destroy ourselves. We live according to the, the Lord and Savior that we follow. We live according to Jesus. And we wanna show him and magnify him in this world. We live according to the life that Jesus has called us to. It's not trying to balance in the middle, it's trying to go above and beyond because that's who he is for us. And he satisfied the judgment for us. It's not about earning our salvation. It's about living out of what God has given us and recognizing that and the hope that he's fulfilled in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to encourage us this day. God, I praise you for the sacrifice that your son has made for us and our sake on the cross, Lord, that we might be reconciled to you and call you Father, that you are a God who is righteous and who will judge, but a God who has also given mercy and forgiveness to us through him. And Father, as we prepare for communion, we are reminded that the blood that he shed was a sacrifice, a gift to us, Father, that, um, that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to you in a way that shows us your love and it gives us a hope and a path for new lives and righteousness, Father, through it. In Jesus' name, amen.